0: Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What's going on, you guys? This is the first bonus episode. It's so cool to have been able to go to KetoCon, and I did a talk there. And though the slides are not included, clearly, because this is iTunes and other media, this was a fun talk. It was on my birthday, as you will hear. So it is basically just a bonus episode. I appreciate you all. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review if you enjoy this podcast. If there are things I can do better, let me know. Basically, this episode is sponsored by me. It's just me. So I hope you guys are insiders and you are enjoying the newsletter. Go to fundamentalhealthinsider.com to sign up. Probably by the time this episode gets released, I will have my new website up, which is carnivoremd.com. The old website will redirect there, but carnivoremd.com is my new website. You should go check it out. All of the work I do is supportable through Patreon. I do see clients In person and virtually, but I produce a ton of free content. So if you guys have questions and you want to be able to ask me those questions, consider supporting me on Patreon. It is Paul Saladino MD. So think about Fundamental Health Insider. I think you guys will enjoy it. Fundamentalhealthinsider.com and check out my Patreon, Paul Saladino MD. That allows you to ask me questions without further ado. Straight on to the talk from KetoCon. Enjoy it, you guys. I appreciate you all. Bonus episode, bonus. All right, what's up you guys, can you hear me okay? (laughs) How's it going? How's it going? So, check this out. I woke up this morning, and I forgot that it was my birthday. (laughs) Thank you. Somebody texted me happy birthday, and I was like, oh my gosh, today is my birthday. (laughs) Which I think is actually a really good thing. It's just a testament to the fact that I've had like, so many cool things happening recently um, that I've just been so busy with lots of cool projects. And I'm excited to share with you guys some of that stuff. So this is really a brief, a brief tour of the things that have been super exciting for me over the last year of my life. And it's been a whirlwind. And it's, it's the most exciting stuff that I've probably experienced in a long time. Um, I did an Instagram post about... The fact that I forgot my birthday today, and I just felt like, you know, as I go around the sun one more time, like, I just can't think of another year that I'm more excited to experience, because I think that this year is just going to be incredible, and there's so many amazing things happening in the world of medicine and health. I mean, this conference is a testament to that, and I think that uh, the carnivore diet is something that's really, really fascinating. So, the title of my talk is The Carnivore Code. And this is the name of a book that I'm writing. So the subtitle of the book is Returning to Our Ancestral Diet for Optimal Health. Now, this is the kind of stuff I'm going to talk about in this. And we have a lot to cover, so we'll see how it goes. If you guys have listened to me on podcasts, you'll know that I talk ridiculously fast. And I promise I'm not on anything, I just have a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of words. And sometimes they come out of my mouth really, really, really fast. So I'll try and slow it down and we'll see what we get to and we can kind of do a choose-your-own-adventure. So I want to tell you a little bit about my story. I've talked about it a little bit, but it's kind of a good context for the whole thing. I'm gonna make a postulate about what I think would be the optimal human diet. I'm not gonna define what that is, I'm just gonna give you things that I think are axioms of any human diet that would be optimal. Because that's really, in my opinion, a fascinating question. How do humans eat to kick the most ass possible? How do we eat to be the best? And I think everybody in this room probably wants to know that, because that is ultimately the best cheat code we're gonna have. I'm going to talk about the evolutionary origins of the human diet briefly. I'm going to talk about the fact that plants don't love you back in a little more detail. And that's probably going to be the meat of the presentation, because I think that in this audience, in the world of keto and ketogenic diets, the concept around that are going to be the most controversial. So I'll try and do them a little justice and provide some arguments there. I'm going to talk a little bit about bioavailability. I'm going to talk a little bit about myth busting. And then I'm just going to say a few words about how to construct a nose to tail carnivore diet. And when we get to the end, we'll see how much time we have for questions. I think if you guys wanna know, you know, the meat of how to construct a nose-to-tail carnivore diet, I've got tons of resources. I've got a podcast called Fundamental Health. We can talk all about that. But the other stuff that comes before it is really what I wanna focus on as we go through. So, I don't know if you guys know this, but I was a vegan (laughs) and I was a raw vegan in 2009, yeah. So, I was a cardiology PA at the time and I was running, and I was 30 pounds lighter, uh, 30 pounds less muscle, and you can't even really see it, you know, and I'm smiling, but I'm really skinny, right, and I really did not feel well, and I gained a ton of muscle back when I started eating animal foods. I didn't go straight to carnivore in 2009, I went to like an organic paleo diet for about 10 to 12 years, but... What happened for me in the last year was that I found the carnivore diet, and this is kind of where I am now. So that's the end of my talk, you know? <laughs> <laughs> if you guys need to know anything else, you know, it's all, it's pretty much, you know, I don't know what else there is to say. Um, okay, I'm joking. There's a little bit in between. So I was a raw vegan, and I was really skinny and I would go on runs with people and I literally would scoop down and grab dandelion flowers and dandelion leaves and eat them. And I didn't make the connection when I would have GI distress on the run or wouldn't feel great, but I was just so convinced that this was the way to do it. And then I heard a talk from Jeff Bland, who you guys may know from the Functional Medicine Movement, Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute, talking about this concordance between our book of life and our genetics. And I thought, that is a really cool thing And even at that time, which was probably 2010, I thought, you know what? Humans have been eating meat a long time, eating animals. I'm pretty sure I should be eating animals. And that's what my genetics are expecting. That's what's written in my book of life. So I went back to eating animals, and I experienced improvements in my health. I was pretty much organic paleo for about 10 years, strictly organic paleo. But I never got rid of my eczema, right? And that eczema was probably the best blessing I've ever had because it signaled to me personally, and this is my anecdote, that there was still something going on in my body that wasn't right. I still had some autoimmunity. I still had some chronic inflammation under the surface. And it really kept me hungry. It kept me curious about what I was doing in my life, in my diet, that wasn't right. What was out of focus. And so this is me doing jujitsu. I did a lot of this in medical school. And I had a lot of trouble in jujitsu because the eczema came back frequently. I got it on my elbows. I got it on my knees. For any of you Guys or girls who know about jiu-jitsu, it's all on the mats, you're just sweaty and you're moving around, and it's really hard to prevent eczema if you have a tendency toward that. It got infected, I got impetigo, it was a real difficult time. But the eczema kept me thinking, what am I doing differently in my diet that's creating imbalance, that's triggering autoimmunity? And just because I think you guys need to appreciate this, this is my jiu-jitsu face. Right? <laughs> I don't have a lifting face, but I have a jiu-jitsu face, okay. So now my story of the carnivore diet really starts about a year ago because in the paleo world, I was thinking, all right, I just kept eliminating things. I did an elimination diet with oxalates, and then I did AIP, and I did them all sequentially. I did them all cumulatively to the point that I was paleo, and I was low oxalate, low histamine, AIP, and a few other things. And I was like, well, basically, what am I eating? I'm basically eating avocados, lettuce, and animal foods. And then I heard people talking about autoimmunity, resolution from a carnivore diet, specifically Jordan Peterson, Michaela Peterson and a light bulb kind of went off in my head because I just finished my residency in psychiatry and I've been in medicine for years. Like I said, I was a PA in cardiology prior. And one of the things that keeps coming up in my mind is the theme is the idea that autoimmunity is really the root of chronic illness today and it's inflammation. And if you think about disease, it almost all has an autoimmune component, at least chronic disease. And so I thought, what is causing autoimmunity, and how do we affect that? Anytime I heard anecdotally about something that affected autoimmunity, my ears parked up, and I thought, what is going on there? And so when I heard Jordan and Michaela talking about the fact that Michaela had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, Jordan had probably a similar thing, and they had improvement with a carnivore diet, part of me said, they are batshit crazy, right? <laughs> and the other part said, that's interesting, why don't I dig into that? And that was the beginning of sort of my carnivore rabbit hole, and I've just fallen way down it. And this is what I've discovered. I'm going to talk to you guys about all the stuff I've discovered about this diet. And so when people hear about a carnivore diet, I think that the the first thing that comes out of their mind is, how are you going to poop? Like, So just so you guys know, I pooped today. (laughs) (laughs) And it was beautiful. (laughs) And I got a poop award, all right? So we're going to talk a little bit about fiber. I could do a whole talk about fiber but I will assure you, there are thousands, tens of thousands of people on carnivore diets who poop just fine. You don't need fiber to poop. We're going to talk about it. But now that we've gotten that out of the way, all right, let's think about diet. Before, as you know, I think a carnivore diet, I know so a carnivore diet, is perhaps the optimal diet as a baseline for humans. But let's just put that aside for a moment and think, if we were going to define the optimal diet for a human, if we were going to enter into such an adventurous endeavor and say, what you know, what would we do to have an ideal human diet? I would say these are pretty reasonable postulates, right? Like, I don't, I don't, it doesn't even really matter to me how you define the optimal diet or how you answer these questions, but would you guys agree that an ideal human diet would contain all the nutrients that humans need to thrive, so all the vitamins, all the minerals, that it would have them in the most bioavailable forms because bioavailability is the great leveler. If you can get nutrients but you can't absorb them, what's the point? And this is a whole thing that I could do a whole talk about and I think it's wildly misleading, when we look at chronometer and other tools that help us look at what nutrients are in our foods between plant foods and animal foods about bioavailability. But I would argue that the most bioavailable forms of nutrients is a really key thing because it's not what's in your food, it's what you get into your body, right? You can eat something like pure metal and it's just gonna come right out your other end. It doesn't matter, you know? Oh, it's got plenty of iron, it's gonna cure my anemia. Well, no, you're not gonna absorb any of it. So you have to have lots of nutrients. (laughs) They have to be bioavailable and then you don't want any toxins. Right? You don't want anything that's bad for you. So these are my postulates for what the ideal human diet was. And I will leave it to all of you individually to answer what that is. It's like my riddle of the Sphinx. What is the ideal human diet? Well, I would say it's got to satisfy those things. So we'll come back to it in the very end. All right. So I think the beginning of the conversation is the beginning of human existence and the beginning of human evolution. It's interesting. We don't have time to really go into it in full detail, but let's talk about it for a moment. I did a thing on my podcast with Miki Bendor. I'm not an anthropologist, but this is so fascinating to me. Where have we come from as humans? Well, we've come from Australopithecus. We were Homo erectus, Homo habilis. And we were about 2 million years ago that humans began to really look like humans. That's really Homo erectus and Homo habilis. And we're about 2 to 3 million years ago. That's where we've come from. We know we came from the apes and that we were in the trees eating plants. But if we look at this, I think we can get some really interesting information. So this is human brain size in millions of years. And it goes back more than four million years. So we're going back into sort of primate ancestors beyond four million years. What we see is that until about two million years ago, the brain size was the same. And then suddenly, boom, something happened, and our brains just expanded. And I'm going to take out a, Sean ba- a page out of Sean Baker's book when I say this. Sean Baker's in the back, you guys. <laughs> Primate evolution happened for 30-plus million years before we became humans. Primates had 30 million years to grow a big brain eating leaves, and it didn't happen. And then something happened two million years ago. And I would argue that thing was eating animals and eating all the animal. But there's something magical that happened two million years ago. Some people would say, oh, it was the advent of fire. Well, that's debated. Maybe it's 500,000 years ago. Maybe it's, you know, who knows how long ago we had fiber. But something magical happened two million years ago, and I would argue there's really good evidence that that was eating animals, that the idea that we started hunting and eating animals made us human, allowed our brains to grow into incredible ways, which allowed us to do all these crazy things, allowed me to stand in front of you, forget it's my birthday, and post about it on Instagram, right, because I have a reasonably big brain. Now you'll notice that human brains have gotten smaller, and we're gonna talk about that too, (laughs) that they peaked about, maybe 10 to 20,000 years ago, and now we're getting smaller brains, so we'll talk about that. But there was a big expansion in the size of our brain which correlates with the advent of stone tools and evidence that we were hunting. I would say that hunting made us human, and you can pick in this picture who you want. Maybe one of those is Sean Baker. One of them's me, and one of them's Danny Vega, but, you know, <laughs> we'll see how you do it. I, I just don't want to be the guy. I think the guy wrestling with the bear is Sean because he's the guy. <laughs> he's got to be the guy. I'm going to be the guy standing in the background there. You go, Sean. You get that bear. All right, there's really interesting anthropology evidence looking at stable isotope values in Neanderthals and first humans. So now we're fast-forwarding to about 80,000 years ago, much more recent. We're looking at Neanderthals, Homo sapiens in Europe, and what we see is that if we look at the collagen, the bones of these peoples, they have really high levels of different nitrogen isotopes. Without going into all the minutiae there, what that suggests is that as we eat more animals, we accumulate more nitrogen paleoanthropologists can look at the level of nitrogen in these bones and compare it to other known carnivores at the time, like hyenas. I talk about this in the YouTube that I did with Miki Bendor that I'll probably put on my podcast soon, but it's on YouTube if you want to hear it. Well, what do we see? We actually, 80,000 years ago, looking at our collagen, so teeth and bones, had more nitrogen in our bones, more of these isotopic ratios than known carnivores, like hyenas. So there's very strong evidence, and there's a really strong belief that we were actually high-level carnivores. And it would make sense, right? Where are the nutrients? Miki Bendors talked about this. Where's the calories? Where are the nutrients? They're in animals and animal fat. The idea that we were eating zero plants, probably not, but we'll talk about that in a moment. But we were probably getting the majority of our nutrition from animals. And again, this harkens back to the idea that this is probably what allowed us to become dominant on this planet, to grow big brains, to get really, really smart. But there's isotopic evidence that we were high-level carnivores. We were not high level vegetarians or vegans now plants look really different today people will say oh we probably ate some animals and some plants well I don't know if you guys know this but that's not what a forest looked like <laughs> right? that's not what the forest looked like and in fact nothing in that picture nothing in that picture grows in the wild it's all been hybridized and it's bigger and it's more palatable but nothing looks like that that is not what an ancestral broccoli plant looks like broccoli doesn't even exist Broccoli is a mustard plant from thousands of years ago. It doesn't have a big flowering head like that. And those potatoes, those are toxic 80,000 years ago. You can't even eat those. Those are completely toxic. Not pictured in this picture is things like almonds. Again, completely toxic. We've hybridized the heck out of them. So many of the foods we eat now are different. If you were walking around the forest 80 million, 80,000 years ago, excuse me, it would look like this. This is a picture I took when I was hiking on the Olympic Peninsula outside of Seattle, which is where I finished residency. This is an awesome place. It's called the North Fork of the Ho River. You guys are all in a big secret here. This is an amazing spot. It's not in the National Park, but if you go to the Olympic Peninsula, go to the North Fork of the Ho. Do you see anything you can eat in that photo? Anything? There's nothing edible there, right? I'm gonna go up and eat a piece of this fern. I'm gonna get really sick. There's probably some oxalis there. Well, that's a like clover, right? That's, gonna, that's probably gonna kill me. That's so much oxalate, I'm gonna die. We're gonna talk about oxalate too. There's nothing edible in that picture. That picture, is not this picture. The idea that our ancestors would have been eating a lot of plants is a little bit crazy when we think about which plants were available at the time. Now, seasonal fruits, possibly. Did they look different than what we have today? Heck yeah. Maybe some occasional tubers, but here's the thesis that I would suggest. This is my opinion, but I think that we were probably survival eaters of plants, that plants are really just survival food. We know we've eaten plants, but I would say that we probably ate animals whenever they were available, And we would eat plants if we couldn't get animals. We would say, oh, crap, we don't have any animals. We better go looking for some tubers. But that's about all we have. And if we got berries, we're going to eat them. But for the majority of the time, we would go hunting animals. And this is the idea of facultative carnivory, which is a big hat tip to Amber O'Hearn. I don't know if she's here. But the idea that humans are probably only searching for plants when they can't get animals. We are facultative carnivores. We don't need to have animals all the time. And plants can be survival food sometimes. But if we try and make plants the staple of our diet, we're really not going to be optimal. So what happened 12 to 15,000 years ago? This is the Neolithic Revolution. The Neolithic Revolution. Jared Diamond has called this the greatest mistake in human history. For whatever reason, we stopped hunting animals and we started doing this. We started farming. It allowed our population to expand. We had access to calories, but we neglected bioavailable micronutrients. And oops, we got things like porotic hyperostosis. You see the two parietal porosities in this skull. That's an indication this is probably from the Dixon mounds about 10,000 years ago. We see an incredibly increased incidence of these type of problems in humans. 10 to 15,000 years ago when we see the advent of farming, when we have the Neolithic revolution, we also see human skeletons shrink, we see more problems with nutrition because there's not as many nutrients and not as bioavailable. We had access to calories, we lost nutrients, right? Oops. Porotic hyperostosis, no fun when your skull looks like that. Now, Let's think about this a little bit. Let's, let's shift gears a little bit. So that's the evolutionary picture. We were doing good. Our brains went boom. We got huge brains. We got super smart. And then we started farming. We expanded. But our micronutrient status went downhill really fast. And we had problems with this kind of thing. Now, let's just shift gears and think about plants. If we go back to that picture of those plants in the forest, do you think plants want to get eaten? Do you think plants are really friendly to humans? Like plants are awesome, but I don't think plants want to get eaten. And plants and animals have co-evolved for 450 million years. If plants really looked like this, like, you know, you're playing with your broccoli when you're a kid and you're like, oh, I'm the dinosaur, I'm gonna eat this broccoli tree, right? (laughs) If if broccoli trees existed 400, 500 million years ago with dinosaurs, there'd be a real problem because they would eat the crap out of those trees and there would be nothing left and the ecosystem would collapse. Plants don't want to get eaten. They have evolved mechanisms to sort of regulate how much they get eaten with other animals and this is the whole idea of plant toxins. So maybe it wouldn't look like that it might look more like this a diplodocus eating a fern but that fern knows the diplodocus is coming for it and it's gonna evolve some mechanisms some defense mechanisms and if you look at plants universally they have varieties of defense mechanisms. So this is the sad truth you guys. Kale doesn't love you back. It just doesn't love you back why do we assume that plants are good for us? Why do we assume that plants are happy that we're eating them? We should assume the opposite, and I believe the burden of proof should be on proving that plants are good for us, rather than the opposite. We assume that plants are benign. We assume that all these chemicals and plants are beneficial for humans, when in fact, what if the opposite is true? What if plants really have their own agenda? What if plants really just want to make their offspring go and, you know, propagate, and they don't really want to get eaten. They're willing to get eaten a little bit, maybe to spread their seeds and fruit, but Generally, they don't want to get eaten because they have their own agenda, too. What if we assume that and we think, why would a plant compound be good for a human? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Why would plants encourage things to eat them? Then the burden of proof becomes, how do we really believe that plants are good for us? If you want to say that, you have to prove that. Right now, we assume plants are good for us. And every time there's a new chemical, everybody's all excited. Oh, there's a new sulforaphane or resveratrol or terastalbene or curcumin. We think, oh, this is fantastic. Oh, the plants are just amazing. They're just making these compounds to benefit humans when, in fact... They're not making the compounds to benefit humans. They're making the compounds to benefit themselves. These are called phytoalexins. They're plant defense chemicals. They're to prevent the consumption of the plants by animals and fungus. And we, I would argue, have confused the way that they interact with humans. And we'll talk a little bit about that. There's also other plant defense chemicals. We know oxalates are a thing. We know lectins are a thing. We have to be aware that plants have external spikes, but they also have internal chemical spikes. They really don't want to get eaten. So these are examples of phytoalexins. That's resveratrol, terastilbene, sulforaphane, and a tannin. And these are polyphenolic molecules. Sulforaphane is not polyphenolic, but you can see these phenol structures in the molecules. But these are compounds that plants produce to say, get off of me, you bug. Stop eating me. Diplodocus, go away. Stop eating me. I don't want you eating me. These are not things that plants are making for human vitamins. This is an incredible article. Uh, it's 19 what is it, 1990 Bruce Ames, dietary pesticides 99.99% all natural. I think the actual aim of this article was to illustrate that we eat a lot of pesticides that are in plants relative to the pesticides that are sprayed on plants. But I read this article differently. We just eat a lot of plant pesticides. And I'm talking about the pesticides that are made by plants, not the pesticides that are sprayed on plants. So he says it there. We calculate that 99.99% by weight of the pesticides in the American diet are chemicals that plants produce to defend themselves. Gram quantities of phytoalexins that we consume. This pales in comparison to the, the actual sprayed pesticides. I'm not saying those are good. I'm not a fan of glyphosate or any of those, but we are ingesting gram quantities of these on a day when we're eating a variety of plants, and these are known rodent carcinogens, and very few of them are tested in humans. We don't have time to really dig into this paper, but if you want to find it, I think it's open source. And you can see experiments that were done in the 80s and 90s on these chemicals, some of which are like this, 49 natural pesticides and metabolites found in cabbage, 49. These are just plant chemicals that the plants are making, and we have to imagine it is an incredible accident if one of these ends up being good for a human, because these are from a completely different operating system. Look at all those chemicals. These are all pesticides in cabbage. That's just 49 in cabbage. And many of these are known to break chromosomes. This is an assay called clastogenesis. They use cell culture. It's not a perfect model, but there are concerns that many of these chemicals can actually interrupt synthesis of DNA, replication of DNA. So many of these chemicals are what we think of as phytochemicals. These are the magical chemicals that we're told are so good for us. When people say, you can't do a carnivore diet, what about the phytonutrients? I was just talking to somebody last night at the VIP dinner, and he said, my doctor said you need plants because of the phytochemicals. Phytochemicals are magical, right? Phytochemicals are unicorns and fairy dust. <laughs> they are magical, right? I would argue no. Because and Let's look at this real quickly. These are a series of studies that I think are some of the most revealing. If phytochemicals were so magical, what would we see in interventional trials? Maybe we would see improvements in inflammatory markers. Maybe we would see improvements in oxidative stress, right? We don't see any of that. And people have done these studies, but nobody ever hears about these studies. There's four of these studies. I'm gonna go through all of them real quickly. Effects of high consumption of vegetables on immunological and antioxidant markers. This is a four week intervention. They compared a group with low vegetable consumption or high vegetable consumption. So 800 grams of vegetables per week or 4,200 grams of vegetables per week. And these are not just like, these are not weenie vegetables. This is not like, you know, iceberg lettuce. Jerusalem artichoke, carrots, tomatoes, red cabbage, sweet peppers. You've got everything that people say is amazing. You've got brassicas in there, right? What do you find? No significant changes were detected in clinical, immunological, and antioxidant markers in biological samples. What? How can you, these people are eating 4,200 grams is almost 10 pounds of vegetables and fruits per week. 10 pounds. You don't have any change in your immunological markers or your inflammatory markers? This is wrong. This can't be right, right? Well, actually, maybe these are just unicorn farts, right? Maybe they're not unicorns, they're they're very magical. Another study, effects of high consumption of vegetables, same things. Oh, actually, I think I might've re-put the uh, same title, but it's a different study. Right? This is the same, same kind of idea. Parallel design, 24-day placebo-controlled. They're having no vegetables or lots of vegetables. Our results show that after 24 days of complete depletion of fruits and vegetables, or daily ingestion of a pound and a half of fruits and vegetables, or the corresponding amount of vitamins and minerals in a pill, the level of oxidative damage was unchanged in the DNA. This suggests that the inherent antioxidant defense mechanisms in humans are sufficient to protect circulating mononuclear blood cells from reactive oxygen species. Wait a minute. You mean that we can just make enough antioxidants? We don't need antioxidants from plants? That's a radical concept, right? No change. No benefit. 24 days. Pound and a half of vegetables per day. All right. Tooth fairy. Sorry, guys. Are there any kids in here? Tooth fairy's not real. Increasing the vegetable dose is associated with a rise in plasma carotenoids, which means you get plant pigments in the blood, but no modification of oxidative stress or inflammation in overweight or obese postmenopausal women. What? The change during each feeding period increased dose level. Urine concentrations of eight isoprostane F2, which is F2 isoprostanes. These are a measure of oxidative stress. Serum CRP were not affected by any administered vegetable dose. In this variable dose vegetable study, a dose response for plasma carotenoids was demonstrated without a significant change in oxidative stress and inflammation in overweight postmenopausal women. Okay, I'm waiting. Where are the vegetables? What are they doing for us? Well, maybe they're Sasquatch, right? As much as it pains me to tell you this, I don't think Sasquatch exists either, guys. This is a crazy study. It's a little bit more complex. They didn't actually intend to study this, but what they did was they removed all the flavonoid-containing vegetables from people's diets, and they say in the conclusions, the overall effect of a 10-week period, 10 weeks without dietary fruits and vegetables, was a decrease in oxidative damage in DNA, blood proteins, and plasma lipids concomitantly with marked changes in antioxidant defense. That means people got better without fruits and vegetables. What the heck? So what are these magical chemicals doing for us? Well, maybe, what about hormesis? People love hormesis, like, that's always the response. Okay, okay, what about hormesis? Like, what is hormesis? What about, surely they're good for us because of hormesis. Well, I kind of just showed you they're not good for you because of hormesis because if you're telling me that they're going to be hormetic, then you should see an improvement in oxidative stress because that's what we're saying these chemicals do, that they're going to raise glutathione levels. That's the hormetic effect. I kind of just showed you they're not good for hormesis, but let's talk a little bit about hormesis because this is such a pet peeve of mine. I would say there are two types of hormesis. There's environmental hormesis. And molecular hormesis, and I actually think molecular hormesis is kind of a misunderstood term. I think we have incorrectly applied the idea of molecular horme excuse me, environmental hormesis to molecules. We know that in our lives, heat, cold, sauna, exercise, there are things that make us stronger by breaking us down a little bit. But I would argue that the molecular hormesis doesn't really hold up to the same sort of intellectual scrutiny. It's a little tricky, right? But the idea is a small amount of a poison makes you stronger, or does it really? Well, How does hormesis work? Most hormesis works through what's called the NRF2 pathway in the liver. Without getting too granular, it's a pathway that responds to oxidative stress, right? Now, when we eat sulforaphane, when we eat a lot of these phytochemicals, these magical Sasquatch unicorn fart phytochemicals, they activate this NRF2 pathway, and we get more glutathione. And people say, look, we proved it. We proved it. We're done. We got it. Sulforaphane makes you have more glutathione. It's magical, it's unicorns. Well, is that really what's going on here? Because this is an antioxidant response pathway. The reason it activates that is because it's a molecular stressor, because it's an oxidative stressor. And there are two problems I have with this. Number one, we don't really need sulforaphane to have adequate antioxidant defense. And number two, there are lots of other chemicals that activate, whoa, sorry. Lots of other chemicals that also activate this system. Would you guys say that cigarette smoke and smoked meats are hormetics? Because if you, if you don't, then you got to know that both of these also activate the NRF2 pathway. These are both oxidative stressors and both of these activate the NRF2 pathway. So nobody says, take your cigarette today and eat some broccoli. <laughs> and that's an oversimplification, but in some way at a molecular level, it's very similar. So here's the data, lung exposure and glutathione, cigarette smoke exposure, Initially decreased, that's extra-lymphatic fluid, glutathione levels is GSH by 50%, but within two hours, glutathione levels rebound to three times basal level and peaked at 16 hours with a six-fold increase over repeat exposures. That sounds like hormesis to me. Is this what you guys want? You want to smoke cigarettes? (laughs) Like, what are we talking about here? I, I would say this is a little bit confusing, you know? Like, why do we think these plant molecules are so magical? Same thing happens with smoke from grills, and this is always confuses people because they're like, "You're a carnivore, you eat all the smoked meats," and I'm like, "Well, there's a little nuance there, right? You got to be careful with polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, heterocyclic amines, but human metabolic response is to polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. This is a Traeger grill, right? It makes all these polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. They get in your meat. It tastes like smoke, but these also trigger the NRF2 pathway. So there's a lot of symmetry." In many of these molecules. So sulforaphane, cigarette smoke, smoked meats, they're all kind of activating the same the same system in the liver. So either they're all toxins or they're all really good for you and you can decide which one you think it is. But the idea here is that do, then the second question, which is probably the most important question, is do we even care? Do we even need these hormetics? And one of those articles about plants with fruits and vegetables really suggested the answer to that that humans probably don't even need these types of things to have the optimal antioxidant response because we know that living a radical life, this is not me, but somebody swimming near glaciers, we know that doing this, like I said, can be an environmental hermetic. This can increase your glutathione in critical ways. So we don't really need to have the things from plants if we can do this because that's, that's the thesis, right? You need phytochemicals. They are gonna do something for you that you can't do without them. They have a unique effect I would say no, there's no evidence for that. There's no evidence they have a unique effect in the human body. You might be able to you know, make a really small, uh, really small focus with your study and say, hey, they're gonna increase glutathione. I'm gonna say, yeah, just go jump in a lake, dude. Like, just go swimming. If you want a hormetic effect like that, just go swimming. You can do this without those chemicals. You can get adequate antioxidant defense in your body without those magical phytochemicals. And the thing I don't really have time to talk about today is that on the back end, if we look, and we were talking about this last night at the VIP dinner, If you look at those chemicals, because they're from a different operating system, they often have negative effects elsewhere in the human body. They often do bad things. Sulforaphane, for instance, will compete with iodine at the level of the thyroid. Curcumin is the one everyone loves. But if you look at curcumin, man, it's been shown to potentially damage DNA, to interrupt DNA transcription, to interrupt DNA unfolding, which is an enzyme called topoisomerase. Curcumin also has been shown to affect the potassium channel called the HERG channel and damage both native and cancerous cells and cell culture. So wait a minute, this is really kind of disturbing here. Maybe these plant chemicals, maybe plants don't really want to get eaten. Maybe plants aren't really trying to help us. They're just doing their own thing and we've misinterpreted all this data. But this is my thesis that these plant chemicals are not uniquely beneficial for humans. We don't need them. You can survive on plants for a little while, but it's probably not your best idea. And this is just the phytoalexins. What about the oxalates? Well, those are some pretty scary headlines right there. There's oxalate in breast tissue. Could it be an inducer of breast cancer? Calcium oxalate crystals can induce renal inflammation. In that last study, effect of cinnamon and turmeric on urinary oxalate excretion. Turmeric, magical. I mean, if there's, no, if there's a unicorn fart, it's turmeric, right? Like, <laughs> turmeric is about as unicorn farty as it gets, man. Like, you're going to increase your urinary oxalates with turmeric. And if people may know about oxalates, oxalates are part of calcium oxalate kidney stones. Oxalates are not a good thing to have in your body. Your body makes a small amount of oxalates when it detoxifies an amino acid called hydroxyproline. Like 50 milligrams a day, maybe less. But with, with turmeric, almonds, and beets, you can get gram quantities of oxalates in your diet. I did another podcast on my YouTube channel with Sally Norton. If you guys are curious about oxalates, you should look her up. They're not a good thing to have in your diet. You probably don't want to push more oxalates in your diet. Not a good idea. Kidney stones, deposits in the thyroid, deposits in the breast, problems. Then there's lectins. Stephen Gundry said he was going to come to this lecture, but I don't see him here. (laughs) We'll see. This is one thing I agree with him on, sort of. We know that lectins are a big deal. Lectins are carbohydrate-binding proteins. And the lectins in plants don't really play well with lectins in animals because we're from different operating systems, and they cause all sorts of problems. And people know this. If people have read his book about the plant paradox, if they've experienced reactions to nightshades or beans and the high-lectin foods, you'll know that there's probably problems with lectins that these can really cause problems. And we don't have time to go into all these. I just want to point out that there are lectins in plants. There are lectins in animals too, but they don't really seem to trigger the immune system in the same way. There's some really scary ideas with lectins happening right now. Paul Mason great, great talk where he talked in detail about this kind of thing. This is in C. elegans, which is a small little worm, but in C. elegans, and I believe it's rat models, you can see that lectins, specifically lectins from beans, can be transported from the gut to the brain and make lesions that look like Parkinson's disease that is a scary thought interestingly if you see the last sentence here oh, I don't think I put it in there oh yeah a recent Danish study showed that vagotomy resulted in 40% lower incidence of Parkinson's disease over 20 years that's an epidemiologic finding and that's severing the vagus nerve which is a nerve that goes from the stomach to the brain but they noticed that that's probably how the lectins were traveling in these C. elegans worms that these lectins were actually moving from the gut to the brain, potentially through the vagus nerve. And epidemiologically, when they cut the vagus nerve in patients or people in Denmark, they had less Parkinson's disease. So this is a scary thought. Are these lectins ending up in brains? Are they creating leaky gut? And lectins are primarily in the grains and the beans. So big problem. We talked about bioavailability, the idea that phytic acid present mainly in staple foods, a strong negative effect on zinc, uh, absorption from composite meals it also affects calcium, magnesium, manganese, any divalent cation. So if you go on chronometer and it says that your broccoli has a lot of calcium, no, you're not absorbing it. You're not absorbing the zinc. You're not absorbing any of these minerals because of phytic acid. So this gets back to the idea of bioavailability. And I could do a whole talk on that, but I don't have time. But I just want to remind you that it is not the same. When Vega Protein says you have 35 grams of protein, no way. <laughs> that protein is not bioavailable in the same way. The other thing is the B vitamins. And B vitamins are not as bioavailable in plants either because they're bound to glycoproteins. They're only like 30% as bioavailable. People say, oh, you get your folate from leafy greens. Well, you'll also get a big dose of oxalates, and you're only going to absorb about 30% of the folate in there relative to folate in animal foods because of this binding to glycoproteins. And this goes back to a concept that I've talked about before that animals and plants are really different operating systems. we got MAC and we got PC. You guys can decide which is which based on your preferences, but I'm gonna say humans are max because I like max it, it, it didn't fail me today. And so when you eat from a different operating system, you get real problems It doesn't really work well, and that's what we see with the bioavailability I just want to illustrate this with something called the Rotterdam study We're talking about k1 versus k2 k1 is phyloquinone k2 is metaquinone There's multiple types of k2 mk4 mk7 mk11 depending on the length of the side chain of the of the molecule right now what do we see in this study? This is epidemiology. The relative risk of heart disease mortality was reduced based on the intake of metaquinone. So the more vitamin K2 they had, the less coronary artery disease they had. The last sentence is probably the most important to me. Phylloquinone intake was not related to any of the outcomes. Vitamin K1 is in plants, doesn't occur in animals. Phylloquinone intake, not related to any of the outcomes. Vitamin K2, the more you eat, at least in this epidemiology study, which is pretty profound, the less coronary artery disease you had. Well, where's vitamin K2? It's in everything that kills you. Eggs, muscle meat, liver, right? These are going to give you heart disease for sure, right? Except they have vitamin K2, which probably prevents it. Because vitamin K2 will tell your body where to put the calcium in your body. So plant molecules are not the same as animal molecules, and you have to convert vitamin K1 to K2. And I'm actually very skeptical of the medical literature that would suggest there's any unique role for vitamin K1 in the human diet. That's a whole thing for another day. People will say that you need vitamin K1 for clotting, and I would say, nah, you're gonna use your vitamin K2 to do that. I'm not convinced of any unique role for vitamin K1. So get your vitamin K2, you're gonna be way healthier. Plants are not equal to animals, different operating systems. We don't have a ton of time to go into these, the myths. Red meat is going to give you colon cancer. Red meat is going to cause your heart to explode. We already talked about you need fiber to poop and have a healthy gut microbiome. I'll say a few words about this. I'm about to go over. We'll see. Red meat and cancer. Are you guys familiar with the IARC monograph? This came out in 2018. It's why everyone thinks red meat is going to cause cancer, right? It's, an, it's a meta-analysis. So it's a study of multiple epidemiology studies. There's 14 epidemiology studies in here. And the, the the outcome of the study was that red meat is a type, is a class two, it's a class two A recommendation, meaning it's a probable carcinogen. Well, how did they arrive at that? If you look at the 14 studies in here, eight of them, there was no association, no association between red meat and cancer. Wait a minute. That's, uh, I'm not a mathematician. That's more than half, right? More than half of the studies in this, no association between red meat and cancer, none. Five of the studies, non statistically significant, small association. One study, Statistically Significant Association Between Red Meat and Cancer. So this whole decision is based on one statistically significant thing out of 14. And in that one study, they said the increased risk due to red meat intake occurred only at lower legume intakes and higher body mass. So these are people who are more obese and had more tendency toward diabetes. Those are the only people in whom red meat was associated with a problem with higher incidence of colon cancer. Do you think it might have been the fact that they were like pre-diabetic or obese? Like, there's a lot of confounding going on here, guys. And remember, the vast majority of the studies here didn't even show an association between red meat and cancer. So between the idea that red meat causes colon cancer is, again, that is a myth. That is like Sasquatch. Heart disease? Oh man, I could do a whole talk on this. Like, I just sat down with my friend Nadir Ali. I'm going to release my podcast next week whole podcast about LDL. On my podcast, I talk to Dave Feldman. The idea that red meat causes heart disease, again, think about it contextually. If we've been eating animals for two million years, why would they give us cancer? Why would they cause your heart to explode? Evolutionarily, that makes no sense. But if you just look at this, this is one of the most interesting studies. If you look, this is epidemiology, but if you look in Asia, What do you see? Red meat intake inversely associated with cardiovascular disease mortality in men and with cancer mortality in women. So people who ate the most red meat, the men who ate the most red meat had the least incidence of heart disease. The women who ate the most red meat had the least incidence of cancer in Asia. How do you make sense of that? We only get fed westernized studies, right, which are confounded by healthy user bias and all these things. This is the problem with epidemiology in general. But the take home with this is I strongly believe that the LDL hypothesis, the lipid hypothesis is wrong, that LDL is not directly toxic to the endothelium, that having a high LDL on a carnivorous ketogenic diet is nothing to worry about, and that there are other things driving the, the, uh, the beginning of plaque formation. So if you guys want to hear about that, listen to the podcast I'm going to release next week with Nadir. But there's so much evidence to suggest that this hypothesis is greatly overblown. And then we talk about statins in that podcast too. Now, if you don't eat fiber... This is a whole other thing guys, this is a huge talk. If you don't eat fiber, you're not gonna be able to poop, you're gonna get constipation, you're gonna get inflammatory bowel disease, right? Except there's tons of studies like this where they can remove fiber and see resolution of idiopathic constipation. So what's going on there? That doesn't make any sense if we're buying what we're being sold. So the fiber story is something I've talked about a lot. It's just not clear. It's, I would say it's very clear that it's not a problem to have no fiber. And the fiber in the microbiome is a talk that I want to give separately because Nadir and I were talking all about that. People still think you need fiber for a healthy gut microbiome. I don't buy it in one sense. I did a podcast with Tommy Wood recently, and he nailed it. He said, looking at the gut microbiome and looking at the species in the gut and saying that we know what's healthy is tassiography. It's reading tea leaves. Clinical outcomes are more valuable when it comes to the microbiome. If you see someone is healthy clinically then they are probably doing well from a microbiome standpoint. I'm going to do a hat tip to Sean Baker again. The microbiome you have when you're healthy is a healthy microbiome, right? It's just too complicated. We don't know to go and say, oh, you don't have enough acromancy. You don't have Roseburia." This is too granular, you guys. What do we see on a carnivore diet? We surely don't see people getting inflammatory bowel disease. We see the reverse. There are case reports, people with Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis resolving. And if anyone in here, who's a carnivore in here? Oh, look around you guys. Oh my gosh, how many people in here who are carnivores have had their GI symptoms improve? That's a lot. Anybody had GI symptoms get worse? (laughs) Okay, there's some nuance there, but the vast majority improvement in GI symptoms. So clinically the absence of fiber, there's a strong suggestion that it's not a big deal. So what's the summary? I would say humans evolved as facultative carnivores. Eating animals probably made us human. This is a piece of our lives. This is a piece of our history. Plants are jerks. (laughs) Not really, but they surely don't wanna be eaten, you guys. Polyphenols, phytonutrients, it's it's magical. It's probably a bedtime fairy tale. I just don't buy it. I don't buy it. I think that notion alone is the most controversial thing I've said in here. And I think over the next year, this trip around the sun for me, you guys are gonna see this. Change the landscape. Because when people begin to realize this, shit is going to hit the fan, (laughs) right? That's going to be pretty wild. Animal foods are incredibly nutrient-rich. They're incredibly bioavailable. Animal foods are the ultimate multivitamin. Whether or not you eat all animal foods, if you're getting animal foods in your diet, you are getting more bioavailable nutrients. And we know that micronutrients are what create quality of life and longevity. You can get calories to get to tomorrow, but if you want to live well, you need micronutrients. You don't want parotid hyperostosis. You don't want a spongy skull. And eating animals will not give you cancer or heart disease, and you don't need fiber. Now, let's just think about Let's return to the postulate. Animal foods, I would say, are the most nutrient-rich foods. This is my opinion. You guys can make your own. I would say animal foods clearly the most nutrient-rich foods. I don't like the wording nutrient density, but I like to think in terms of presence of nutrients, there's no comparison between plant and animal foods. Animal foods are the most nutrient rich foods on the planet. They're all highly bioavailable. They're basically look like us. They're from the same operating system and they don't contain toxins or anti-nutrients. There's a little bit of nuance there in terms of how you cook them, do it responsibly, but I'll let you decide what the optimal human diet consists of. You guys know where I stand. Like if we accepted those things, I think a carnivore diet is really reasonable and a good option. Now, how to be radical, I don't have time to really go into this, This is how I construct a carnivore diet. You have to think about fat protein ratio, eating organ meats, thinking about your electrolytes. And I just want to say a word about how to be carnivore-ish. I don't think we all have to be completely carnivorous. But I think that the takeaway for people is that eating animals will give you more nutrients, and you will avoid more plant toxins. We are, in fact, facultative carnivores. We can eat plants if we need to. But just realizing that when you incorporate plants do so mindfully and the more of the well-raised animal foods you get i think the better you're gonna do it's like a straight line or i mean that's how i constructed a straight line the more well-sourced animal foods you eat the more you're gonna kick ass right you don't have to eat all of them all the time if you don't want to some people do a lot of carnivores in this room but knowing that you can eat plants sometimes is fine just be aware of which plants are more and less toxic oxalates lectins etc particular phytonutrients, actually phytotoxins that you might be sensitive to. So I like the idea of being carnivore-ish. You know, you don't have to be fully. If you want to do it, you can. It's doable. But, you know, there's a continuum there. And I think the more animal foods you eat, the better you're going to do. If you guys want details on the other stuff, I've got tons on my social media. You can talk to me afterwards. I do a podcast. I talk about all this stuff. I did a recent podcast with the Bell Brothers. I saw Chris Bell. He just walked out. I did a podcast on his podcast with his brother. It's called Mark Bell's Power Project. We talked about fat to protein ratios. I always talk about eating organs. I love them. I think they're full of important nutrients. Electrolytes are important to consider if you're not doing well on a carnivore diet. If you're not doing well on a ketogenic diet, you need to think about salt and other electrolytes. Okay, so if you want to stalk me, (laughs) Fundamental Health Podcast, check me out. Paul Saladino MD is my website. Soon to be carnivore MD. I'm just going for it, you guys. CarnivoreMD.com, it's coming soon. My book is called The Carnivore Code. It's gonna be out in a few months. Wait for it, it's gonna be hot. And I'm doing a cookbook, Carnivore Code cookbook. It's gonna be amazing. And I have a newsletter, which I keep renaming. Right now, if you wanna get on my newsletter, it's called CarnivoreCodeCollective.com. You can sign up for my newsletter there. I'll send you one out whenever I get around to it. It'll probably be later this week, but I've been super busy. So busy I forgot my birthday. Carnivore Code Collective. That's me. Thank you guys for coming. It's awesome to see you. All right. That is all for this week. Thank you for listening to that talk. It was super fun to deliver. As you know, that is the title of my book, The Carnivore Code. In fact, the full title of my book is The Carnivore Code, Unlocking the Secrets to Optimal Health by Returning to Our Ancestral Diet. How badass is that? It's amazing. Working on cover designs. It's going to be amazing. So... This is a bonus episode. I appreciate you all. Please leave me a review on iTunes if you like this podcast. Help me reach more people. FundamentalHealthInsider.com to sign up for the Insider where I release all kinds of cool stuff. Support me on Patreon if you appreciate my work. And if you do support me on Patreon, you get the opportunity to ask me some questions. It's really hard to answer questions on Instagram and via email. But Patreon gives me a little bit more sustainable forum for that. So check that out. That is Paul Saladino, MD. All right, you guys. Till next week. We'll talk to you in the future. Stay radical.